The Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello, everybody. This is Nick Robinson from Aberdeen, and you're listening to the Emerging Markets Equity Podcast, the show that explores the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. We ask our expert guests the big questions from key individuals to evolving trends, all with the goal to identify and profit from opportunities in the region. So a few weeks ago on this podcast, I was joined by Hasnain Malik from Telema, and we talked about China, nearshoring, and many of the other current themes in emerging markets. But as well as EM, we veered into discussing those countries which aren't even developed enough to be classified as emerging, the so-called frontier markets. We talked about how some of them are particularly well-placed to benefit from the nearshoring trend, a weaker dollar, and rallying commodity prices. So today we're going to build on that discussion and focus in on frontier markets, both in terms of how to think of them for investing, but also which ones might be winners of the future. So joining me today to discuss this is my colleague Kevin Daly. Kevin is an investment director on our fixed income team, and he's been successfully running a frontier markets bond fund for the last decade. So he's an expert in this field of investing. Kevin, thanks for joining me today. It's great to have you on. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, let's get started. So I guess I'm an equity fund manager. You're a fixed income fund manager. So typically, we'll look at investments from different angles in that you guys tend to be a bit more top down and focus on economies whilst we focus on companies and you know, so-called bottom up investing. But our experience in frontier markets has been a bit different in that we tend to be or we need to be a bit more focused on the top down, just given how volatile some of the countries can be in terms of things like capital controls and the particular government instability that you get. You know, how do you see frontier market investing in terms of how it differs from you know, conventional emerging market or even developed market investing? Yeah, I guess um, if I start at the top, probably the, one of the biggest differences that we have when it comes to investing in frontier uh, bonds versus equities is we, uh, you know, I think the universe of investments is in some ways larger because we're looking at hard currency, sovereign bonds. We're looking at local currency, uh, government bonds, which, you know, as an asset class is two times the size of the uh, hard currency sovereign. And then there's also uh, hard currency corporates. So we have quite a bit of investment opportunities out there. Um, and the investment universe is probably 40 to 45 countries as well. It, it you know, doesn't mean we're investing in that many uh, at one given time, but you know, we'll continue to follow them on a um, regular basis in terms of the uh, macro analysis and the investment opportunities. So the limited uh, part I know about, about frontier equities is uh, it tends to be you know, larger capitalizations in a handful of countries or a handful of stocks. And, uh, and I think when it comes to bonds, I think there's more opportunities to uh, diversify um, across, you know, again, hard currency and local currency markets. Yeah, certainly thinking about investing in frontier markets from a stock perspective, liquidity was always a bit of a challenge. And then just finding those companies which we felt had good governance where we we trust the the owners and the management team. And actually a lot of that, you know, where we felt most comfortable in in many examples was investing in locally listed subsidiaries of big multinationals. So things like the Unilever subsidiary in Nigeria, for instance, where at least you could be fairly confident that yeah, there was a good controlling shareholder keeping an eye on things. 
In terms of your you know, frontier markets bond fund that you've been running for the last 10 years, you know, what have been the big learning experiences you've had over the last decade? Well, when we started this out, you know, 10 years ago, uh, I guess at that point, um, you know, there were some concerns uh, internally about the uh, liquidity of the, of the asset class. I think over time, that's been largely dispelled, meaning, you know, we've generally found opportunities to not just enter markets, but more importantly, exit markets or reduce our holdings if necessary. And, you know, a good example of that was during the uh, pandemic, the peak of the pandemic, where we had quite a bit of, you know, in terms of our percentage holdings, around 35% in local currency bonds at that point. Now, intuitively, one would think local markets would have seized up and would have been less liquid than hard currency markets, but it was actually the other way around. And why is that? Because you had a lot of uh, you know, mutual funds which invest in the hard currency uh, frontier names, and they were getting hit with uh, large redemptions. Now, there is no local currency index or market. Generally, local EM local currency funds don't invest in, in these frontier local markets. So you didn't have that sort of technical aspect, which you, know, you had outflows, which then in turn weighed on these local markets. Um, the domestic bid was also an important part uh, at that point, too. So you know, again, looking back, we were able to raise a lot of liquidity to meet the expected outflows uh, by reducing, sharply reducing our local currency uh, positions. And at the same time, getting ourselves in position to invest in the hard currency bonds, because these were the ones that were hit by far the hardest. And, you know, when we look back over the last three quarters of 2020, uh, we actually saw very strong performance from hard currency bonds as they recovered uh, during that period. So, it just shows you that, again, liquidity at times, um, it, it can work you know, in your favor or it can work against you. And, and fortunately, at that point in time, we weren't forced to uh, sell any hard currency bonds to raise cash. You know, we were able to do it all through the uh, local markets that we had been investing at the time. Yeah. And so I suppose when you think about local currency versus hard currency, and, and particularly the environment we're in at the moment where... Yeah, the dollar has been weakening a bit of late after quite a long period of strength. Yeah, how do you think about that going forward, you know, given dollar weakness and also government's ability to repay those hard currency debt? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, we, we put less emphasis on the dollar per se because a lot of these um, local markets, um, you know, actually trade like credit markets. So, you know, if you have a crisis or you have, you know, country running a large current account deficit, or, you know, you have rising inflation. So all these factors, which, you know, we've seen in the last couple of years, have uh, weighed on some of these local markets. And, you know, when I look at the three largest local markets that we've invested in the past, Egypt, Nigeria, and Pakistan, they're really uninvestable at this stage. Uh, and why is that? Well, you have a combination of factors. You have misaligned currencies in the case of Egypt, uh, rates, you know, still well below inflation. In the case of Nigeria, the currency is adjusting, but again, it's all dependent on where you get in. And then, of course, rates have yet to adjust uh, in line with the uh, rising inflation. And Pakistan, similar situation where, you know, you have had a huge currency devaluation in the last few years, um, given the deterioration in the country fundamentals as well. And on top of that, rising inflation as well. And, you know, when you look back at these markets, you know, these were markets which were very investable, very liquid, and we had pretty large positions in the past. At this stage, we have zero exposure to those countries. So these are markets which, again, are trading more like credit markets as opposed to, you know, the currencies. 
as opposed to uh, trading off the dollar. But, you know, if we do enter a period where dollar weakness does occur, and, and there is some thought to that, given that the Fed is pretty much done and um, at some stage they march their cutting rates in 2024, that should usher in some dollar weakness. And, and, that, and that generally will help uh, some of these frontier currencies. But I still think, you know, what's going to drive these currencies is less to do with the dollar and more to do with the country fundamentals. Right. And and then I suppose you've started drilling down into specific markets there. So, you know, beyond Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, which frontier markets would you have you know, particular concerns about today? Are there anywhere you know, there's been political change that might make you nervous or anywhere further capital controls could come on the horizon? And I suppose, you know, it's probably worth touching on Argentina, just given some of the political change there that's happened recently and the the new president's desire to dollarize the economy? Yeah, I guess let me start with the the, the biggest challenge I see for frontier markets today and and really, you know, into 2024 uh, is the lack of access to the external bond market, to the uh, international bond market. And that, you know, in many ways uh, has been a theme of the last year and a half or so where countries have had no access to the uh, international bond market. And why is that? Because it's a real taboo in our markets if you're looking to borrow at double digit yields. Um, and at this stage, you know, countries, you know, most countries out there have yields in the region of 11 plus percent. I mean, there's a couple of in West Africa, which are inside of 10% now, but these countries, you know, have uh, chosen not to uh, come to the bond market. And instead, what, you know, what they've done and what some of their uh, frontier peers have done has been more reliance on the IMF for cheaper financing, which I think is not just from a debt management standpoint important, but also from a fiscal standpoint, there's um, anchors in place, which these countries have to uh, continue to, uh, to meet these targets. And, and that, from an investor standpoint, is, is a positive thing, too. But I, I would say that is the single biggest challenge facing these countries. Now, on a positive note, most of these countries are not facing any large bond maturities next year. Uh, there are two large maturities, which the market is going to be closely eyeing. One is Kenya, which has a $2 billion uh, maturity in June. And then Pakistan, which is at $1 billion in April. Uh, the base case at this stage is these countries are going to meet these maturities. But you know, through drawing down other resources, whether it be loans or FX reserves, so that in itself means that you have you know less capacity to continue to service your debt going forward. So it's important that these countries do regain market access uh, over the next several years. But our base case for next year is that frontier countries largely will have zero access to the external bond market. So I would say that by far is the biggest challenge these countries are facing. And what's uh, what's driving that lack of access? Is that just the fact that investors just don't have much desire for this exposure given risk aversion? Well, it's uh, first of all, it starts with you know what we've seen with where treasuries are, right? You know, ten-year treasuries. You know, let's call it four thirty. Uh, a few weeks back, we were touching five percent or going through five percent. And the reality is, these countries that issued eurobonds, you know, going back six, seven, ten years ago. We're doing it when Fed funds were at you know at zero, right? And when ten-year Treasury yields were sub two percent, so you know they had access to the market because there was a search for yields, and you know you had very low Treasury yields and very low corporate bond yields. So this uh, helped them get access to the bond market. But today, you know, again, when you look at where spreads are, you know, the country risk premiums. Most of these countries are looking at country risk premiums of 
600 to 900 basis points, let's call it, right? So if you tack that on to where treasury yields are, that immediately puts you into double-digit yield territory. And, and as I said, you know, there will be a lot of raised eyebrows if countries start trying to come to the market with double-digit coupons, you know, like 10%, 11%, 12%. I think there would be limited demand for those names and in some ways might send off the alarm bells going. So th- that is the main reason. I, but I think also, you know, you have to look at the deterioration in credit risk. The last couple of years, we've seen an increase in defaults in frontier markets. And over the next two, three years, I would expect to be more credit events as well. So, you know, that's another reason why uh, investors are reluctant to lend money to these frontier countries uh, at this point. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure risk aversion is, is certainly a factor as well, because when we look at it from an equity side, I mean, 10 years ago, this was an asset class that you know, a lot of clients had an awful lot of interest in and today, there's you know, virtually zero interest in the asset class as a as a broad theme. Um, I think you were perhaps I interrupted you before you were about to talk about Argentina, so I'll, I'll let you carry on on that. Yeah, we we can't avoid talking about Argentina, <laughs> can we? Um, yeah, I guess uh, if you look at the uh, the election result, it's a pretty strong mandate uh, that Malay got, and you know he has some pretty. Um, you know, radical policies, which he discussed at length uh, on the campaign trail. And some of those were in, in many ways scaring the market, scaring the uh, domestic audience. And the big one is um, dollarization. And, you know, what Argentina desperately needs is, uh, well, first of all, this is a country with 140, 150 percent inflation rates, which is crazy, right? And um, in order to address this issue and to bring inflation down and to introduce dollarization, Argentina needs a a significant boost in its FX reserves. And, you know, net reserves are negative in Argentina right now. So dollarization is off the menu for now. Um, It might be something that Malay tries to bring back in several years time, but that's a big issue, right? And uh, on top of that, he's also talked about fiscal consolidation. You know, Argentina is running fiscal deficits, you know, 5% uh, or higher. And, you know, this is another part which is also weighing on inflation. So you've got a number of big challenges that he's facing. And, uh, you know, what Argentina has also is a an electorate which can really turn on its politicians very quickly. And this is through the midterm elections two years out. So, you know, the window to get things done to uh, introduce some of these uh, significant changes is a, a fairly small one when it comes to not just emerging markets, but frontier markets. So, you know, I would say, you know, so far the the market likes the result, the strong mandate he has. You know, you've seen a, a nice little rally in Argentine bonds this week. But, uh, you know, you, you still have some significant challenges ahead and uh, it won't be easy. And, and we'll have to wait and see, you know, how things play out. But uh, from an investor standpoint, uh, Argentine dollar bonds are trading in the high 20s, low 30 cent area. So you are buying those bonds today, you know, your prospects for recovery value are still relatively attractive uh, should things go well. But, uh, you know, that's another challenge as well is whether or not there will be another restructuring over the next several years. And, and again, you can't rule that out as well. Yeah. And then I suppose thinking about the other side of the the coin in terms of frontier markets, are there any that are doing so well at the moment, there's a possibility they may be upgraded at some point to the coveted status of emerging? Well, you know, I would say the one country which has been promising in the early uh, stages of the new administration is uh, Nigeria. So we had an election in February. Tinubu from the ruling uh, APC party 
uh, won the election, you know, when he was sworn into office at the end of May, um, the immediate announcement to remove fuel subsidies was greeted uh, very positively by the market. And then several weeks later, they uh, announced they were going to start to align the um, the exchange rates, right, the official rate with the parallel. And uh, it's been a slow, a long, slow, painful process since then. The parallel rate has been weakening further. Uh, the official rate, you know, was 462 before the before the announcement, and now it's call it 750, 800. It sort of you know bounces there there and about. But you know what they need is they need to find liquidity in order to get uh, investors comfortable bringing dollars back on shore to invest in the local market. And you know one of the uh, the negative surprises, shall we say, with uh, Nigeria that came out again after Tinubu took office was an audit of the central bank which showed their net reserves were uh, extremely low. And this is a country with gross reserves at $33 billion. So it's clear they don't have the reserves to provide liquidity for the market. So, um, but, but, you know, again, so far, so good. This, this administration has come in with an agenda for structural reform, and that's something which previous administrations in, in uh, Nigeria have been either reluctant or unwilling to do. Uh, so I, I give them credit for that. And on top of that, you know, another key initiative is to boost the uh, revenues to GDP, which is one of the lowest in the world. It's around 10% uh, right now. Their goal is to to increase it to 18% over the next three years. So uh, ambitious that that is. Using the term uh, structural reform in Nigeria in the same sentence is something which uh, hasn't really happened in, in many, many years. So I give these guys credit for for the reform agenda. And you know, so far, the early signs are positive. But again, you know, there, there's still a lot of work uh, ahead that they need to, uh, to, they need to do. And presumably, I mean, with a place like Nigeria, a bit like the Middle East, some healthier revenues from a higher oil price should help that reform agenda and give the government a bit more breathing space. Or is that a bit too simplistic way of thinking about it? Well, that will help in that you have uh, with a weaker exchange rate, official rate, that means you have more fiscal revenues for for spending for the government, uh, which is important. But the revenues, and then again, that would be a non-tax revenue, right? Tax revenues is something which are, are paltry, right? And it's, you know, a lot of people in Nigeria don't pay taxes. And uh, companies that are, have tax exemptions or loopholes or, again, ports, which are, are getting away with avoiding taxes. So there's a lot of crackdown that needs to occur to boost the revenue intake. And in the past, this is something that previous governments have been unwilling to do. So there, there are several factors which could help to boost tax revenue. The oil is obviously uh, one of them, which is, uh, again, a non-tax revenue item. But on the tax revenue side, there's a lot of uh, you know work that they need to, uh, and, and hopefully they can deliver. If they can, uh, I think investors will start to re-rate Nigeria you know, as a country which uh, looks investable again. And, and as we've seen over the last uh, six, seven years, you've had several episodes there where Investors have come on shore and have been stuck on shore through uh, capital control. So they're they're at least sending the right signals to the market. But uh, as I said, there's a there's a lot of work still to be done. Thanks. Yeah, I, I suppose sticking on commodities and and that theme, I remember from an investment trip I did to Rwanda some years ago that that country is particularly well positioned in terms of some of the rare metals like niobium and tantalum, which are used in EV batteries. So thinking about that, as the, as the world navigates this energy transition, are there any frontier markets that stand out in terms of positioning in some of those transition commodities or broader commodities like copper and the like? 
Um, I mean, you know, Zambia is one that stands out as a big copper producer. Um, you know, Zambia has been in the news a lot lately because of the uh, uh, debt restructuring, which, uh, you know, looked like it was on track until China kind of threw a, a spanner in the works by pushing back on the agreement that was reached between the government and bondholders. But nonetheless, when you look at the story, copper is a, uh, an important export item for, for Zambia. I mean, this year, unfortunately, copper production has been lower than expected, below 800,000 tons. But this government has said, you know, this is a government which was uh, a pro-market government, which was elected back in 2021. You know, they've said their target, you know, is to get uh, copper production to 3 million tons. And now that is extremely ambitious. But even if you get, you know, halfway there, if you can double copper production, that would be very positive. And so there's been a lot of emphasis on trying to address that issue uh, in the country. And, you know, I think when you look at the the importance of copper in EVs and other items as well. It's uh, an extremely important uh, input into EVs, batteries, etc. So I would say they could be well placed to benefit from, you know, this green transition that we're seeing around the world. So that would be one for me that really uh, stands out. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. I do remember there's a couple of investable companies in Zambia which you can invest in from an equity perspective. So. It's not a market that's entirely uh, impossible to invest in. Um, I suppose one of the other trends we've talked about a lot on this podcast in the past has been nearshoring. So have you seen the impact of that within your frontier market universe? Uh, not really. I think you know a lot of these countries, unfortunately, don't have the manufacturing capacity to offer nearshoring opportunities to, uh, to companies. You know, We've heard this in the past from Nigeria, for example, that they're going to focus on manufacturing. But again, they just don't have the the infrastructure, the capability at this stage to do that, right? So I would say at this stage, it's not really a market driver. It's not something you hear very much uh, in terms of frontier country attracting you know, major companies. But uh, as an investor, you always do think about this. And if, if there is a, an opportunity out there for a country to increase its uh, its capacity and boost its infrastructure to offer these opportunities. And yeah, I think it would be uh, obviously an extremely important uh, development for these countries going forward. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, having visited Nigeria a few times, I can't really imagine the, the state of a roads there or the ports there is, is really in the state that you would imagine it being a real manufacturing hub anytime in the future. So it's a perhaps final question, um, you know, over this last decade, which is which frontier market has been your favorite to visit on investment trips? Yeah, where have you found? Uh, yeah, where would you like to go back to for uh, perhaps a family holiday? Oh wow, that's a that's a uh, that's a tough one. Uh, family holiday. Let me start <laughs> with my favorite uh, my favorite uh, trips. I mean, I've I largely have enjoyed most you know of the trips that I've gone on in the past to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, I was intrigued um, by recent uh, in the last five years. You know, for example, going to Gabon and, you know, Gabon has been in the news with uh, uh, the military coup that occurred back in, in August. And when I was there, it just struck me as a very calm and quiet country and uh, and a very small country as well, too. But um, and that was an interesting one because, you know, 85 percent or over 80 percent of the country is forest forestry. Right. And um, I remember hearing a lot about the opportunities there in terms of the uh, benefits they could derive because it you know generally has been very reliant on on oil exports 
you know, that was an interesting trip. I think, um, you know, looking, I went to Egypt about four years ago, three, four years ago, and, and that had been my first trip to Cairo. And I was just amazed by the, the hustle and bustle, the, the potential there. And, you know, what you've seen with Egypt, unfortunately, has been a situation where government has been very reluctant to, to disengage the military from the private sector and at the same time to, to sell up government-owned uh, entities, uh, which, you know, is going to be necessary in order to unlock IMF financing. Um, I, I would say, you know, there are parts of Egypt which I haven't been to, which I know are very, you know, I guess if you're talking about family holidays, that's where you want to go, Sharm el-Sheikh, things like that. I'd say the last place that was really intriguing for me was Ethiopia. Uh, I've been there um, a number of times in the past. The last trip I went there was, again, about four years ago to Addis Ababa. And, and again, I was amazed by the improvements in the inf- infrastructure in that country. And, and, you know, it's a very industrious country as well, too. So there's a, you know, I, I guess I'm always uh, amazed when you go back to these capitals, these urban uh, centers in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, just to see the development that's going on. And there's... Uh, as we know, lots of opportunities and upside potential for these countries if they can get their policies right and if they can get uh, attract forward investment. And that's always a challenge, especially in the last two, three years. We've had a number of crises which have uh, uh, had a big impact on investment into these countries. So, yeah, I would say there's been generally a very good experience of traveling around uh, the region. Okay, great. Well, with that uh, triplet of holiday recommendations for the more adventurous traveller, I think that's probably a good place to draw the podcast to a close. So the only thing left for me to do now is thank my guest, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, thank you, Nick. And thanks so much, everyone who took the time today to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and for more great content, visit Aberdeen.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.